Last episode was our first chapter, exploring the role of women in de-radicalization efforts. Today, our second and final chapter of this mini-series, we're continuing our exploration in a country that reportedly has the highest rate of nationals joining extremist groups, Tunisia. And many Tunisians, many women, acknowledge a problem and are actively working to combat extremism. Today, we're going to share the stories of some of these women. I'm Hiba Fisher. I'm Rosanna Zayani, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. So should we start with the mountain, I guess? Sure. This is producer Jackie Sophia. So we heard this story about a mountain in Tunisia called Jebel Smama. And this mountain, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, as in it takes several hours just to get there by a car from the capital, Tunis. And it's part of this larger province, Kasserin, just on the western border between Tunisia and Algeria. And I was in Tunisia recently and met with a man named Adnan, who lives in this mountain area, Jabal Samama. We spoke in Arabic, so we're having a voice actor play his lines, word for word, from our interview together. Oh, as you, they say, it's originally called Semana, after the bird Seman. And Seman is a bird that lives in the mountains. But after time, the letters changed. The N don M or the M don L and so on. <laughs> so Jabla Samama or Samana? Well, it's kind of both, um, but we heard locals call it now Jabal Samama, so we're going to call it Samama. And I try to assume my responsibility as a man of the mountain and as a shepherd. So Adnan and Razan met in a local cafe while she was in Tunis. And they got to talking about Jebel Samama. I'm in the mountains. I live between Kasserine and Nebol, between the mountains and the sea, between Mount Shambi and the Mediterranean Sea. I teach French language in university. And I'm also a uh, shepherd from Jebel Samama. The way of life for a lot of boys was shepherding. They would take their herds up through the foothills and into the mountain Samama to graze. And being a shepherd, it's not just a job, it's a way of life. Adnan talks about being a kid and hanging out with the other shepherd boys. They would go up and hike around the mountain together. They would camp out there at night, sit under the stars and make music with each other. It's the uh, job of my ancestors. It's all about poetry, freedom, and and love for the land. It's it's something we uh, we love and we become very proud of these hills. The history of shepherds, um, the history of shepherds is ancient and it dates back to the times of the prophet. Um, I'm not one of those who prophesies like not al Mutanabbi, the famous poet. For Adnan and his people, their mountain in Jebel Samama is more than just a beautiful landscape framing their town. 
It's this, this source of livelihood. But even though the mountain is considered this source of life for the people there, it's also become a really dangerous place. So Adnan tells this story about three women. There were three young women last year, Sharifa, Khaira, and Malia. It's late May 2016, and they're hiking up the mountain, up Jebel Samama. The mountain soil is really rich in natural resources, like plants the women can take to market and sell. And as the sole breadwinners for their families, today it's just like any other day. Right after morning prayer and just before sunrise, they go up to the mountain to harvest rosemary. It's about 3 a.m. And so you can imagine, it's super dark outside. And the soil, it's kind of dry and rocky. So these women, they're walking along a dry, rocky path up the mountain in the dark. And as they get deeper into the mountain, Sharifa walks ahead. And she notices that she's just stepped on a piece of fabric coming out of the dirt. She lifts her foot, and the landmine explodes underneath her. Sharifa and Khaira died, and Malia lost her sight. Adnan says the explosion was so bad that they couldn't even find any remains of the women. Malia was diagnosed terminally blind. And because of all her injuries, she won't be able to work in the mountains again. Why were there landmines in their mountain? So the other thing to know about this particular mountain is that it's technically a closed-off military zone. Jebel Samama is part of a larger mountain range. And its rough terrain with all of these hard-to-reach places have made it this perfect hiding ground for violent extremist groups. And this has been going on since around 2011, right around the beginning of the Arab Spring in Tunisia, when after decades of dictatorship, Tunisians began their first democracy. The Tunisian army has clashed with Islamic extremists near the border with Algeria. Gunfire was exchanged, and around 10 to 15 militants were surrounded by the army, according to a So you would think that a new democracy... It would mean better opportunities for poor areas, like in the mountains, right? But it doesn't. People in the mountainous areas, they're still struggling with infrastructure, job opportunities. There isn't as much attention being paid to them as there is in the cities. And the other awful consequence, by the way, of extremist groups staking claim to their mountain is that people in Jebel Samama don't have the mountain as a reliable option anymore for making a living. And so instead, people have joined these extremist groups because they can offer a livelihood to them. Some of these groups are loyal to al-Qaeda, for instance, while others are pledging their allegiance to Daesh, or the so-called Islamic State. The mountains that were a source of livelihood, and now the residents have been deprived of that, and they're still facing extremists who are heavily armed in the mountains. And the question really is this. Can anything be done to counteract these groups? So, test, test, Lily Crown. Hi, I've got my mic and my giant pot of tea all set up. This is Lily. I'm Lily Crown. Who has been working on this story as a producer. So, Lily, do you want to tell us about Dr. Badra Galul? Yeah, so, Dr. Badra. 
اليوم شربت قهوه و... Today I drank coffee and I ate an apple. <laughs> That's because I'm going into a strict diet. I'm preparing for summer. <laughs> Razan met her in Tunis and the interview is in Arabic. So what you'll hear is a voice actor that will play the role of Dr. Badra word for word from the interview. Okay, I'm Dr. Badra Galul, president of the Government Center for Strategic Security and Military Studies in Tunis. And I don't like the whole I have a, no connection to politics because I'm an academic, because all social work is considered political. We made a promise as a center and I, as a president of the center, to carry the national cause, which is a very big cause called combating terrorism. I started the center to reform the security and military organizations in Tunis. And we need security and military reforms to coincide with this fight against terrorism. So Dr. Badra began conducting studies so that she could better understand what radicalized a person. In July 2016, we conducted a study, a field study, in a working-class neighborhood in Tunisia where a high number of townspeople were suddenly disappearing and then reappearing amongst terrorist groups, meaning many terrorist recruiters were very close, if not living, within this town. It had a big portion of young adults that went to fight to Raqqa and to Syria and to Iraq and to Libya. We asked, what is the reason for this? And me personally, I went down into the field and I wore hijab and I changed my looks a little. I had a terrible fear because even Tunisian authorities forbade me from going because I'm a known personality. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Badra often speaks publicly at conferences and on TV. I was scared to the point where I hired a man from the area that lives with them and knows all of them. So this neighborhood, it's a neighborhood that completely lost their way. Very poor and lost in the very sense of the word. This neighborhood, like a lot of Tunisia, had a high unemployment rate, particularly amongst the youth. The blending, assimilating with them was hard. In the beginning, they were somehow reserved, despite the fact that I was with this well-known man. Not to mention, Dr. Badr was basically a government representative trying to uncover the terrorist group's ways. Asking questions, studying personalities, trying to get into their heads, trying to be right there with them. And we began working for about three months or so. Like daily, we would walk around and see, and we would hear the young adults with the kids. And what she found out about what radicalized a person was basically the same pattern we spoke about in chapter one of this miniseries, similar circumstances that drove Christiane and Damien to join ISIS. Youth with little hope, these places where support systems unravel, with poor or inaccessible education systems, high unemployment, places where the military and police punish people more than they protect them, these are the places where Dr. Badra is seeing higher rates of extremist recruitment because then a terrorist recruiter steps in and offers hope, meaning money. It's a systematic approach that continues to work the world over. As one boy told Dr. Badra straight out, From what he tells me, he doesn't have hope. I only have two solutions in life, madam. Either we burn in Europe 
or we burn and dash. Now, we started researching this episode because we were interested in the role of women in counterterrorism. So let's talk about women. We've talked a lot about men being recruited, but in truth, women are recruited alongside men. Therefore, in our studies of terrorism and the women inside it, you see the woman that gets involved. Their reference was a man, either her dad or her brother or her friend or her husband. So she follows immediately. And after, she becomes active. Because their problems are like the problems of guys. There was one that told me that she never thought she would join a group. But now, she joined the group and contributed logistically to the terror operations for Susa Resort. And this equal recruiting wasn't always the case with terrorist groups, Dr. Badra studies. These extremist groups move from place to place a lot, hiding out in the mountains. So women used to be kept on the sidelines. But then... There was a shift. Then comes al-Zarqawi. He says the opposite in 2006. Zarqawi is originally Jordanian, and he's also a lot like the young men that Dr. Badr described earlier. He comes from a pretty rough neighborhood in Jordan. And in 1999, after about in prison, he went to Afghanistan and he joined al-Qaeda. And... Then a few years later, he went off and started his own branch of an extremist group in Iraq. It grew and then became what we know today as ISIS. ISIS has been building momentum for years. The group's inspiration for indiscriminate killing comes from the man who formed al-Qaeda in Iraq in 2004, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. According to Dr. Badra, Zarqawi actually did see women as more important figures in his vision of a so-called caliphate or this idea of an Islamic state. He did see how much women can contribute. I mean, think about it. Women make up over 50% of the global population. If you leave women out of something like this, you're leaving out a whole group of people that otherwise could double your influence. Why not? Why not? Why not have her in the front lines? forming battalions, such as Katibat al-Khanseh or Katibat al-Da'iyat, the female police officers and such. And it really took root with Nada Al-Qahtani, Nadia Sharqawi. Nada Al-Qahtani, she joined ISIS in 2013, and she was the leader of the Khansa' battalion at one point. Al-Khanseh Brigade was set up by IS last year to crack down on women who don't abide by their strict laws, including that they be fully covered in public and always chaperoned by a male. It involves four weeks of weapons training and the women are paid around £70 per month. They mainly patrol the streets, man checkpoints and raid houses. And other women have joined the front lines as well. She's just one example. More than training women as quote-unquote warriors... Zarqawi and his followers recognized the value of women when it came to rallying a community for a certain cause. As in, women make very persuasive recruiters. And these are all things that Dr. Badra discovered when she was doing her undercover studies. So she came back and suggested, let's take their strategy with these women, but use it for good. Flip it on its head. It's hard on us as an Arab society to talk about the terrorist woman. But this is a reality, a present reality. So why don't we choose for the women a different title? 
a title named Building Peace and Protector of Peace. Like a shield. That you, as a woman, you are a social actor, strategic actor, and you're the one that builds peace and preserves peace. Why don't we work on the woman in her positive role? Like the woman that builds peace is not the terrorist woman. Dr. Badra and her team said, look, women are powerful actors in society. As they raise their children and as they raise their communities, they can influence certain messages and certain values. So let's spread peace through women. Dr. Badra Center has started offering workshops, training women to be peace builders. And they start by focusing on the role of a woman as a mother first, starting with confidence and bravery. It's needed for the woman to be raised brave, the woman that protects her home and her young ones and herself and her husband from getting involved in these disgusting, disgusting global games. Right now, the workshops are currently focused on women in Tunisia, but Dr. Badra plans to expand across the Arab world in the coming year. I feel like the same thing could apply to men, though, no? I mean, why only focus on women? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, is that women already hold these traditionally maternal caretaker roles in their communities. And this isn't just for Tunisia. Experts are starting to realize that this applies to communities all over the world. We talk about now alternative female diplomacy, bringing the voices of those who have not been heard and who are in the closest proximity of those who are in danger. This is Dr. Edith Schlaffer. Yes, hello. So uh, my name is Edith Schlaffer. I am a sociologist. Uh, I hold a PhD from the University of Vienna. I've I'm the founder of Women Without Borders. And what Dr. Edith found out was the exact same thing that Dr. Badra was saying, that women so far have been excluded from security conversations. This is a missing link. And when we look into the future of uh, sustainable security architecture without the female building block, nothing will be sustainable because you work with half of the population. It will always be out of balance and it will not be a well-informed intervention strategy forward. And when she noticed that women weren't being included in these conversations, she challenged it. She started by trying to understand the perspectives of both mothers the mother of a terrorist, as well as the mother of a victim of terrorism. The first ever study on mothers, a 1,000 survey, bringing the question forward, can mothers challenge violent extremism? Uh, In this survey, we kind of collected the voices of mothers who were concerned or already affected. We explored what the mothers fear, whom they trust, and what they need. What Dr. Edith found was that what mothers really need in these situations is extra support so that they can confidently identify early warning signs and not just be in denial about what's happening. And then also so that they can share their experiences with a trusted community. So Dr. Edith worked to figure out how to turn these results she found into action. But she wanted to do it carefully. You know, it countering violent extremism, there are conferences and uh, think tanks and workshops. Uh, A lot of material is out there. Sometimes it just collects uh, dust on the shelves. And I think we can't afford that. Too much is at stake. 
she started this program called the Mother School. And basically, it's a space where community members can meet with trained local teachers. And then the women are led through different activities that go over the various stages of adolescent development. So then moms can actually understand what's going on with their kids. All of a sudden, these mothers were in the space of their children. And they said, okay, I think I can talk to them now at home what I have encountered. I empathize, but I don't condone. You know, this is the difference. So the mothers have power, but they have to take it. They have to be aware of it. So we also work a lot around the identity, not only the identity, the quest for identity of the children, of the young adults, it's around the identity of the mothers. If the mothers don't feel strong, the children can't trust them because they don't think, oh, my mother is a pillar of strength. And children, or adolescents in particular, tend to go with the power because they want to be heroes, they want to be something great. So how would they, they empathize with a mother who is weak, but at the same time, they don't want to be heard. I'm also a mother myself, and I know that we all tend to treat our children as they would be frozen in time, still sweet six or seven years old, you know. But when they're adolescents, they have many questions. They become uh, unruly, they become all worked up, and they look for purpose, belonging. They want to be, uh, I don't know, uh, adventurous. They, they look for something that is bigger than themselves, and we want them to have a purpose, but we don't want them to end up in the caliphate. So she's saying, how do we help kids in our communities find their purpose in life and keep them safe? Exactly. And so now we're seeing these initiatives crop up focusing on just that. Like coming back to Jebel Samama from the beginning of our story and the cultural center the community is building there. Okay, I'll give you one example and you'll see the power of arts. So um, my name is Olfa, Olfa Therese uh, Rambourg. Uh, Rambourg is my married name, and I'm Tunisian. Olfa founded the Rambourg Foundation in 2011. There was a terrorist attack uh, in 2015 in Tunisia on the beach in Sousse, and the young men who carried out those attacks used to be a breakdancer in the cultural center where he used to live. And they closed it. And he went from a breakdancer to a terrorist. So a few years ago, Olfa met Adnan. And you remember him, right, from earlier? He's a French professor, and he's originally a shepherd from Jebel Samama. I met him through a friend of mine who is uh, also active in, uh, you know, in civil society in Tunisia. And uh, he introduced me to Adnan. He said, you, you're going to love this guy. He's just awesome. And, uh, you know, we connected really quickly and we became friends. Because Adnan is, uh, he's, he's the finest man you can meet. He's honest and he's truthful. Uh, there's so much generosity in Adnan and so much pride of where he comes from, his culture, his region. It's very touching, and he's a very sweet man, you know. He talks very softly. He's someone who draws you into his world, you know, of uh, dreams and <laughs> and poetry. And I remember that we straight away talked about Jebel Samema. 
you know, and he told me how much he loved mountain and how rich culturally it was and, and how much he wanted to do for his people. This is Kasrin, the way that I see it. But records and statistics can show you. It's known that it's a poor area in a dire situation. This is all for sure. And it has been, it has the highest rate of unemployment in Tunisia. These are the parameters that are known to the public, but I don't like to repeat them much. I asked him what was his dream, and he said, my dream is to have a cultural center in Jbal Samema. So I said to him, okay, why don't we do that? And we did it. So Adnan invited Ulfa to come visit Jebel Samama, and it was her first time visiting there, actually. And she told us it's such an isolated part of Tunisia that before meeting Adnan, she had never even considered visiting before. Um, so the first time I went to Jebel Samama, we drove there. It takes about four hours from Tunis. The first thing that I thought was how beautiful the place was, because you only hear about Belsamema in terms of death and terrorism and army and, uh, you know, and then you get there and it's all this beautiful green valley and green mountains and people are so nice and calm and lovely that it's a big contrast between what you expect. You know, you expect to be in a war zone where it's not a war zone at all. They're so kind so resilient, they welcome you with open arms. There's not a hint of hatred. You, you can only be touched by these people because they're suffering in silence. They're not being violent or anything. They're just, you know, they just get on with it. Um, and it's, uh, I found that very, very unfair. The mountains also have a symbolic and uh, spiritual value, like the locals in their areas who cling to the desert and the sea. Uh, people here cling very strongly to the mountains. And for that reason, the locals refuse to leave and continue to live their lives, despite what happens here. They cling to the mountains and they refuse to exchange their mountains for wealthier places. So there was no aggravation, there was no sadness. And because they are, most of them are shepherds, so they all sing, they all play the flute, they all dance, and it's a very happy place. You know, it's poverty, yes, but sometimes you find more sadness in very wealthy places. This is not a sad place. This is a place where people teach you a lesson. And this is also part of what we would like to keep alive within this cultural center, is their own culture. And it's a Berber area, which is very specific to the area. And then, you know, it took some time because everything is slow <laughs> in Tunisia. And, you know, we had to find the land and think about how the center was going to be. So that's what we've been doing since I've met Adnan. And now we started the construction, is nearly finished. So the cultural center will address a few main things. The first 
is a purely cultural center with a cinema, theater, activities for children and teenagers, like, you know, dance and painting, normal activities that children would do. Next, the center will help the people there revive the heritage arts of Jebel Samama through trainings. So all these things made us think that, okay, it's all well and good to have a cultural center, but if people can't even afford to eat, then what's the point? This region is quite well known for a lot of crafts, and we want to revive that because some of the know-how of that area is dying because it's not being passed from generation to another. And then the cultural center will also connect the markets of Jebel Samama to main city centers where the townspeople can sell their work. So like the pottery, carpet making, they have this uh, special um, plant that grows there. It's called halfa, and they do a lot of things with it, especially furniture. And finally... The fourth component is the agriculture, which is again going to create jobs. The prickly pear, which you can use to produce oil, the aloe vera, the apricot, all the herbs that can be used for medicinal or cosmetics. So all this is another project within the cultural center. So it's going to be managed by the foundation and is going to bring new dynamic to the region and create jobs and stop this isolation. The Ramborg Foundation is privately funding the development of the Jebel Samama Cultural Center. But Olfa, she tells us that the plan is for the center to eventually be self-sustaining. So they create these trade pathways between Jebel Samama and the larger cities and attract tourism for the first time into their town. The other day I was there with the architects and the workers on the site, and this guy comes up to me and he says, can you see there's a house being built just opposite the center? And I said, yes, who's building that? He said, it's me, I'm building a small uh, maison d'hôte because I know that people will be coming to the region now. And I just thought, okay, this is it, this is happening. I mean, that all sounds amazing, all of it. The mother's trainings from earlier, this cultural center to revive the local economy in Jalvis and Mama. But how do we know that it's working? Like, how do we know that it's solving the problem of extremism? The truth is, we don't know. And no one does, frankly. It's just too early. All these communities we've spoken to across Canada and Europe and North Africa, they've all mobilized to provide these kinds of trainings and resources, but it's only been in just the past few years. But women are coming back, right? They're coming back to these training programs and saying that they benefited in some way? They have, yes. So there are individual women and community members who are attesting to the fact that, yes, these initiatives do work for them. Things like Mothers for Life and Extreme Dialogue, organizations like the Ramborg Foundation and Women Without Borders. There are people like Adnan and Christiane Boudreau who will say that they have seen firsthand the positive effects on others and in their own lives. But if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture here for a second, because we're looking for a change in the numbers of new recruits who continue to join extremist groups. 
but we won't be able to draw evidence that these measures are the right measures yet. So we've learned of someone who, he articulates this issue pretty well. He's a man named Dr. Daniel Kohler. He's at the German Institute on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies. And he's the same guy who Christiane talked about in our first chapter of this series. So he says there needs to be cooperation, right? There are so many different things pushing kids to become radicalized. And just like there are different ways for someone to be radicalized, there needs to be different ways to achieve de-radicalization. Every program we've talked about is a piece to this larger puzzle, including governments. And until these programs and these governments are really working together, there won't be a complete solution. So what you're saying is, if the government continues to isolate Jabal this cultural center could only be a part of the solution. And that means, God forbid, there may be more stories like Melia, Sharifa, and Khaira. Yeah, that's exactly right. In the months leading up to the opening of the Cultural Center, the Ramburg Foundation has been organizing these workshops in the interim in Jebel Samama. And Adnan, he's been helping lead ones that are teaching circus arts to the youth there. So the kids learn different things like juggling and acrobatics, backflips and spinning plates. And then they perform for people in the village and people who come to visit. They host other performances for each other, too, like poetry readings and music. And actually, Adnan is helping Malia prepare for a one-woman performance. I wrote a text for her that she will recite herself during a monologue. She will go on stage and read the text. I called it Melia after her. He wrote this script just for her after she was almost killed by the landmine. Her name is Melia. And Melia means fortune and treasure. It means treasure in our local language. <laughs> when I started writing, I couldn't find anything at the exact moment to write on. There's been a time where I actually had to use this like, to scratch on a piece of wood. Something must be done in the moment. I wrote this in the local dialect of the mountain. We must control what happens in our countries. And this is the true role of culture. He says that the role of culture is to mark our memories, to celebrate and to mourn and to heal. So I wrote this text that says,
دخانو على وجه في اللحمه همو قمري على شفته هكا محروقو يا يا عمري محروقو يا يا عمري هذه في اللهجه المحليه في لهجه الجبل I see it as stopping the isolation of these people. I see it as obviously giving an alternative so that these young people don't fall into the terrorist uh, trap. And I also see it as a clear message to terrorists in Tunisia that we're going to fight back. This episode was produced by Jackie Sophia, Lily Crown, Rezana Zayani, and myself, Hiba Fisher, with editorial support by Yahya Abu Ghazala, and sound design and mixing by Mohamed Khrezat. A big thank you to Adnan Hilali, Dr. Badr Gadul, Dr. Idir Schlafer, and Ulfa Ramburg. And a huge thanks to Mohamed al and Dina Al-Haddad for doing our voiceovers for Adnan and Dr. Badra, and to Madison Marks for helping tape sync. This episode was produced in partnership with News Deeply as part of their ongoing series about women who are affected by radicalization and violent extremism. We hope that this episode, along with part one in our series, has shed some light on how women are an untapped resource for countering violent extremism around the world. If you'd like to learn more about any of the individuals or organizations we talked about in this mini-series, as well as to follow the work that they're doing, check out this episode's page on kerningcultures.com. There, you'll find a list of resources and photos and videos from Jebus the Mama. As always, if you like what you heard here today, please take a quick second and rate us now on iTunes. It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find out about us. Until next time.